0: Yeah. Good to be together, whatever campus you're joining us from. If you're watching online, uh, I think you're in the right place today. I think God's got some good stuff to say to us, uh, and I want I want to jump right in. Okay, we've been going through the series called Thread, which is all about examining the life of David and the thread that's kind of woven through his life that keeps him together. And that thread, of course, is humble submission to God, realizing God's authority over his life, and and giving God worship and praise. And over the past few weeks, as we've looked at at David's life, we've seen some big moments in which he's done this. Uh, Having to go to battle against a giant, he trusts in God. Running and hiding in the wilderness, scared for his life, he trusts in God. Thrust onto the throne that he'd been promised, having great power, he humbly submits himself to God's authority to lead through him. He's a man of humility, compassion, a man of God, a composer, a shepherd, a warrior, He's a great leader. He's given his people a new capital city, winning battle after battle. The people, they, they admired him. He finds himself in a really good place, top of his career. The kids aren't fighting, the bills are getting paid, promotion after promotion. Like maybe you can think about your own life and think about sometimes that you found yourself feeling like, man, I, I'm at the peak, I'm at the summit, I'm in a really good place. I mean, just this past week, you know, 4th of July holiday, my family and I were hanging out with some friends. And I was floating around the pool. We, we ate well. The kids weren't fighting. They weren't whining. And at the end of the day, I just, I just reflected on my We got seven hours of sleep out of our baby. Whoa, that was awesome. Uh, I, I reflected and told my wife, like, I, just, I feel like life's really good right now. It hasn't been that way, you know, over the past few months. But right now, I just feel like life is really good. Life is really good for David. And I think something is true of all of us. It seems like when life gets really good is when we tend to get lazy. And in David's case, well, it's true. I mean, think about it. When we're in the pit, when life is really hard and we, just, we have to depend on God, well, it feels like we're giving him our focus. We're inviting him to be a part of our life. But sometimes when life gets really good and we start to have success and life starts to feel great, well, we take the focus off of God and we start to put it on ourselves. We get a little bit lazy. We're going to be looking at an example from David's life today, in which he did, in fact, get lazy. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you have a Bible or Bible app, you're, you're welcome to open it there. The words will also be on the screen. And we're, we're going to dive in. We're going to go verse by verse to this, because I want you to see some important truths from David's life. Up to this point, David, he, he was fiercely dependent on God. A man after God's own heart, so he was called. Humble, sacrificial, He had all this authority, wealth, power, admiration, and he starts to kind of puff out his chest. And you realize he starts to think more of himself than he probably should. And he starts to tug on that thread and start to pull it out, the thread of God that's woven through his life. He starts to pull on that, and his life starts to come unraveled. Have you ever had that happen to, like, your shirt or or a pair of socks or whatever? Uh, Shortly after I started at Mountain, this was, like, seven years ago, okay? It was my turn to host. It was, like, my first time I get to come out on the platform and and talk about the the generosity and the, the communion and all that. I was so excited. When I got to church that day, I, I looked down. I was wearing a shirt a lot like this. My wardrobe's pretty bland, okay? It's blues and grays, and that's it. So it was a lot like this. And I had a thread kind of hanging out, and so I just started pulling on it, and 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 pulling on it, pulling on it until eventually this button just kind of like pe- fell off. It popped off. And there I was standing there with all seven of my chest hairs showing. It's <laughs> like, so I had to run run home and get a new shirt and run back. And, and David finds himself at this point in his life pulling on this thread kind of carelessly unraveling his life see let me set the stage for you just a little bit david's just come off a big victory against some of his ally uh, some of the allies of the ammonites who he's still in battle against he's about 50 years old at this time he's seen a lot of success from keeping his focus his attention pointed on god and what god would have him do and then this happens in second samuel chapter 11 it says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, well, David, he sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, I love the way the Bible speaks. It's not passive aggressive. It doesn't hold any punches. It just straight up says, hey, this is the way it is. Guess what? It is the time when the kings go off to war. But where is David? David. He finds himself sending Joab out, his nephew, an elite warrior, to take the troops. And in case you didn't catch the point, well, let's say it really clearly. But David remains in Jerusalem. He's supposed to be with his his soldiers, with his people. Yet he finds himself held back in his palace. Something started to happen in David's life. He started to get a little arrogant. The king should be with his soldiers, but instead he finds himself reclining in the penthouse. Feet up, overlooking the city, getting fat and happy and prideful. I've done enough. I'll just sit this one out. See, something something shifted in David's mind. This isn't the first time we see David's pride taking over, but it's a pretty major indicator that his priorities are shifting. Maybe you've been there yourself. I'm the boss. I don't need to do the grunt work. I've earned this. Somebody else can take care of it from here on out. The, The more you're given, the more you think you deserve. And that, of course, will always backfire. And it did for David. Here he is in the penthouse walking around. He's so well rested now that he, he, he's like staying up at night. He's, he's awake. He, he's kind of done everything he can do. He's played with all the toys. Like he's played more Xbox. He's beat everybody at Fortnite. He's collected all the skins, okay? Uh, now he, he's there and he's beat everybody at ping pong. Uh, he's rested in the jacuzzi. He's eating all the best food. He's so well rested that he finds himself in the middle of the night just up and awake. And then this happens. One evening, David got up from his bed. He's rested and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. So you can kind of picture David walking around the roof and hears the splashing and the giggling. He looks, he looks over the, the rail of his palace and he sees this woman out there bathing. And David, at this moment, finds himself with a decision to make. Is he going to give his lust, his desire, his focus and attention? Or is he going to retreat and give that focus to God? We see what happens next. It says the woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. I want to pause here and, and bring attention to the word beautiful. When scripture pauses to point out a characteristic like beautiful, you, you know it means it. Like the sort of woman that, that when she walks into a room, it's kind of like everybody takes notice of how beautiful she is. It's like this, okay, my wife and I, who, my wife, by the way, is the most beautiful person I know, okay, let's get that out, of, uh, that's out in the open, now everyone knows, okay, but we'll be out at dinner or watching a movie, and, and someone will walk in, and just the, this gorgeous woman walks in, and my wife will take notice, and she'll say, oh my gosh, isn't she beautiful? And my response is always like, I didn't really notice, but I'm glad, I mean, you, you did, so I, I guess so, if you say so, but like the, the sort of person, and scripture goes on to say, very beautiful, gorgeous. David is locked in and he sends someone one of his servants to go find out about her and here's what the man said well she's Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite and something else to take notice of here the servant probably walks over sees sees David looking over the rail sees, sees his eyes get really wide and his, his jaw drops and thinks oh no 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 David bad idea don't look man retreat come back And David looks at him and says, hey, can you go find out who that is? And the servant's probably sitting here thinking, no, 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 no. He he doesn't really want me to do this, does he? So he offers him some information about Bathsheba. It would have been typical for him to offer her lineage and include maybe her father and her grandfather. But the servant, the man, goes on to offer one more detail. Did you notice it? Hey, David, that's Bathsheba. Here's her dad. But that's also like Uriah, one of your soldiers who's out at war. David, that's his wife. Kind of nudging him in the ribs. Well, David, so blinded by his passion, his lust, his pride, his authority, he can't hear the servant's warning, and he calls for Bathsheba. He lost sight of what was right in God's eyes and decided to start to focus on what felt right to him in the moment. And so she comes to his room, and as Scripture describes it, he slept with her, he had sex with her. And we don't have, you know, some graphic novel of how it took place. Did, did, did he come and take a moment to have a meal with her? Did he offer her a drink? Did they talk? Did they have small talk? Or did they just get lost in a moment of passion that felt so good maybe just for a moment? You know, I can't help but wonder, was it mutual? Wasn't it? All well, I know is in that era it would be pretty hard to say no to the king. And here David finds himself giving full focus to the lust that he has. The king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, the humble one, well now his pride has swelled and now he's an adulterer. To be the king, it came with a bunch of perks, but I I know adultery was not one of them. Scripture, it doesn't give us any indication that the the affair continued. They both retreat back to their separate places and, and, and they go on living life all the while kind of having the sin tucked away in the back of their mind, weighing on them. And then, a few weeks later, well, David receives three words from Bathsheba that wreck him. Three words from Bathsheba are sent to David that set the stage for one of pride's greatest victories in the history of the world. She says, I am pregnant. Can you imagine how David must have felt in that moment? Have you ever been caught in a sin and a cheat and a lie? You know what happens in that moment? Like all of a sudden your, your face just becomes flushed and, and the hair stands up on the back of your neck and you realize like, oh no, they found out. It's like a few weeks ago, my kids were out front playing, and uh, my daughter, she she cries a lot, okay? She's pretty dramatic, but this time, she comes running inside off the front lawn and says, Dad, 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 Isaac pushed me down, and she's bawling her eyes out. She's got this big scrape on her knee, and I walk outside, and I'm like, well, I'm sure he did, right? And I, I go out, and I say, Isaac, did you push your sister down? No, no, Dad, she's just a klutz. She fell down all by herself. It wasn't me. And I look at him, and I say, son, remember? The Nest doorbell has a camera. Do I need to go look at the footage? And all of a sudden, his face gets pale white. And he just starts bawling his eyes out. And he's like, Dad, I did it. I'm so sorry. See, David, he's at a crossroads here. He has a choice to make. He can confess, repent, and ask for forgiveness... Or he can allow his pride to swell and build up. That's exactly what happens. He hatches a plan to fix the problem. Instead of confession, he chooses cover up. And here's what it says in scripture. He says, send me Uriah the Hittite. Go to the front lines and get him from the battle and bring him. And so Joab, who's out of battle, he he sent him to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. You know, David just starts by having a little bit of small talk with him. He's sitting there. He's got the man sitting in maybe the same room where he just committed adultery with the man's wife. And he's creating this small talk, kind of building up to the punchline. And here's where David's plan comes out. He he says to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Hey, Uriah, you've been at war, man. Your wife's been here. I'm sure you're itching to go home and sleep with your wife, so just go home. Maybe, if David can convince him to go home and sleep with his wife, then Uriah will think the baby was his all along, and David will be off the hook. Well, David's plan backfires, so Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all the master servants. It did not go down to his house. You see, what Uriah did is Uriah did the right thing. It would have been incredibly inappropriate for Uriah to go and spend the night with his wife while his men were on the front lines fighting the battle. And so he chooses humility. He puts the needs of his men before his own and he lets his own desire d- uh, dwindle within him and instead he lays at the, at the foot of the palace with all the rest of the servants. He doesn't go home and David is realizing Oh, no, I'm stuck. So what does David do now? Does he confess? Does he ask for forgiveness? Does he repent? Well, no, he tries again. And here's what he tries next. Then David said to him, hey, stay, stay here one more day. Okay, just relax one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And then it goes on to say, David at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. And David made him drunk. I know how I'll get him to go home. I'll get him drunk. When he's drunk, surely his guard will be down and he'll go home and he'll sleep with his wife, and then she will think that the baby all along, or he will think the baby all along was his. But Uriah once again does the right thing. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master servants. He did not go home. And David once again finds himself with a decision to make. What will he do with his sin? Will he continue to pull on that thread? Or will he confess and repent and ask for forgiveness? Well, unfortunately, he didn't. He's so overcome with pride and self-preservation that he does the unthinkable. Scripture outlines it for us. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. Sent it with Uriah. And in it, he wrote these words. Hey, put Uriah out on the front where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. Let me ask you, you, do you think David trusted Uriah? I think so. After all, he wrote the very way that he would die, sealed it in an envelope, handed it to him, and sent him back into battle with his own death warrant. David is so consumed with hiding his sin that he takes it even a step further. And how does the story end? Well, it ends the way you would think. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at the place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, well, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Uriah's dead. Not only that, you might not know this. Uriah was like ranked as one of David's top warriors, one of David's mighty men. How desperate has he gotten that he's willing to sacrifice a bunch of soldiers, including Uriah, just to cover up his own sin? He is so overcome with pride. Now he's broken the 10th, the 7th, and the 6th commandment. His pride got the best of him. He took his sights and his focus off of God and gave attention instead to the thing that he desired. And it's compounded into quite a mess. In the chapter, it it ends this way. It says, now when the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, well, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, that was probably about seven days. That's customary. David needed to move swift and fast if he was going to continue to live in the lie. David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and she bore him a son. And hear these words. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Evil. Do you remember how David was described? A man after God's own heart. Now a covetous, lusting, adulterer, murderer, seen as evil. The things he has done in the eyes of God. Things have changed for David. And you got to wonder, how did it get this bad? How did the hole get this deep? Why did he keep digging and digging and digging? And I think when we reflect on chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, there are a few things that we can learn for ourselves to help us to to keep from letting the sin bring us down. The first one is David, David got prideful. And we have got to stay humble. We have to stay humble. David's story, it teaches us that no one is exempt from the trap of sin. A life marked by humility is overcome with lust and passion and pride. And when we think, no, no, not, not David, how did that happen to him? But I got news for you. All of us, all of us, if we give focus to our sin, can be brought down by it. It doesn't matter how holy you think you are. No matter how many worship CDs you have. No matter how many weeks of church you make in a row. No matter how many small groups you're in. Nobody is exempt. Nobody. David let his pride swell. He took his focus off of God and he put it on himself. His humility was gone. When that happens... We start to place the desires of our heart over the desires of God's heart. We place our desires on the throne instead of Jesus Christ himself. You know, Jesus shows us the greatest example of humility through his entire life, but it starts early in his ministry. Jesus is out, he's he's being tempted by the devil. He's confronted with this moment which the devil tries to kind of put chinks in the armor of the humility that Jesus has. And he offers him all these different scenarios. And he comes to one where he says, hey, I, I can make every knee bow. You can have all authority and wealth and power in the world. And look at how Jesus responds to the temptation. He says, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. See, Jesus knows something that we need to know. Our life is about humbly submitting to the Lord. And serving him only. In Jesus' words, they tell us something really important that David forgot. We need to focus on God, not our sin. We need to focus on God, not our sin. David gave his sin, the focus, his attention. He put his eyes on his sin and it started to demand more of him. Here's the deal with David. This wasn't a momentary lapse in judgment. No, for a long time, the desire, the lust had been building within him. We go all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 5, a few chapters ago and a bunch of years ago. Okay, and David finds himself here. It says that David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel. He'd exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And check out the difference here. He realized that the Lord had done all of that. But meanwhile, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. He had more sons and more daughters. See the difference in those words? The Lord had done this, and David took this. You can already see him starting to slip into the hole of sin. You know, for for the king to take more wives and concubines was in direct contradiction to God's commandments. David had a desire, he gave that desire attention. And it started to swell and gain traction in his brain and demand more of him. And it turns out that's, that's what our sin does. When we give it focus, when we give it attention, it starts to want more of us. We start to see more of it. Let me explain it to you this way. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a Kentucky boy at heart, okay? Like, like, nothing makes me more happy than to see a truck. Like, that, that's Kentucky in you, you know? And so every time I pass by the Ford dealership, I see the Ford F-150, and I'm like, man, I, did, I need me a big truck. And so I'll go home, and I'll start researching. I'll Google it. I'll look at all the new bells and whistles, the interior, the exterior, all the components, and I'll get so excited about, man, maybe I should buy a truck, right? Like, every Kentucky boy needs a truck. And then the craziest thing happens. I'll be driving down the road that day, and every car on the street is turned into a Ford F-150. Has this ever happened to you? Like one pulls up beside me, one's coming towards me, I see them parked everywhere. You give your brain something positive that you see that attracts you. You give positive attention to something, and your brain automatically starts to see more of it. It's called the frequency illusion explain it to you this way okay I have this picture here that I think is pretty fitting specifically of the Abingdon campus right now okay the frequency illusion we notice what's top of mind man everyone's having babies these days you see the pregnant lady seeing everyone with kids right but you only see the ones with kids well, at Abington, it just so happens, like, we everyone's having babies these days. Uh, Chase, our, our student pastor, his wife had a baby, like, just over a year ago. Joel, our kid's pastor, his wife had a baby just, like, seven, eight months ago. Uh, my wife and I, we had we had a baby, like, I don't know, 12 weeks ago. Uh, and Nathan Hall, our our worship pastor, well, they, they just had their little one two weeks ago. Uh, little Mason Ray Hall. That's when we all go, aw. There we go. Isn't he adorable? Well, we we've started to notice, right? Like, this is really relevant in our lives, and our brains are giving positive attention to babies, and now we're seeing them everywhere. And sure, like, we tell people don't drink the water, because they really are everywhere. Part of it's the illusion, okay? Part of it's the illusion. Or it's like this, during the college basketball season, I get really excited about Kentucky basketball, and I start to see the little UK logos on the back of everybody's car. And don't, don't get me wrong, I know part of it is because it's the greatest sports program in the history of sports, and of course it is everywhere, but also part of it is the illusion. When we give something positive attention in our brain, we start to see more of it, we start to want more of it. And the same is true of sin, we give sin an inch and it will request A mile. The same is true of David's sin. He started to give focus, and he started to see more of it, and it started to demand more of him. I love the way that Paul describes it in Romans chapter 8. He says it this way. He says, Those who live according to the flesh, will they have their minds set on what the flesh desires? But those who live in accordance with the Spirit, they have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Where is your focus? Where is your attention being given? What gets your focus. Is it your sin or your God? Is it your lust and your passion or is it Jesus? It's a question we need to answer because if we let sin take the focus of our brain, then sin will win. But if we put Christ in his right spot and we humbly submit and we give our focus to him, then Jesus will win. You know, I love the way that Paul presents the case for overcoming sin without, all throughout scripture. He just say in the case of sexual morality, just run, get out of there. But in every other way, just pursue righteousness. It's not about trying to avoid your sin. It's about pursuing Jesus. It's about giving Jesus the focus of your attention. Giving Jesus the focus of your thoughts. Are you doing that? When you want to slip into your sin, do you instead turn to Jesus and give him attention? Maybe like David, when your lustful gaze starts to take over. What do you do? Do you allow it to, or do you retreat and open your word, open the Bible? When you get the desire to cheat on a test or at work in some way, what do you do? Do you give in? Do you give it more attention? Or instead, do you pause and pray and reflect on who God is in your life? When life gets really hard and you just don't want to do anything, you find yourself depressed and anxious, do you retreat and find yourself digging that hole deeper or do you show up to church and just worship your guts out, giving God the focus he needs in your life? When you want to fudge the numbers to make yourself look a little better, to make your paycheck a little bit fatter, does your pride take over? Or do you humbly kneel before Jesus and ask him to remove it? Don't let your sin sneak up on you, but instead run towards righteousness. Pursue Jesus. Give God your attention. You see, David, he let let a sin take over. He let it take focus, and it was a slow fade and a slippery slope. He quit being a man after God's own heart and instead started being a man after his own desires. And it messed up his life, and it pulled on that thread and unraveled the thing that God had been knitting together. Something will always be the focus of your attention. And it turns out you get to decide what it's going to be. We need to be humble. We need to focus on God. And something else I noticed in chapter 11, or maybe I noticed it was missing. Do you notice, like, David didn't have any accountability? Nobody called him out. He never confessed because he didn't have anybody to confess to. We need accountability and we need to fess up. When we feel like sin has gotten the focus of our lives, when pride is creeping up, we need people who are going to call us on it, and we need people who we can say it to that we know are going to love us and care for us and not judge us. I mean, notice in, in David's life, like, Joab knew what was going on. He's no dummy. He's a pretty smart dude. You fast forward the pages of Scripture, and you'll see how smart he is. That servant... The man that was with David that went and told him who Bathsheba was, who was kind of elbowing him, well, why didn't he speak up and say, David, this is probably a bad idea? No, maybe, maybe he was scared. I mean, after all, he was the king. Maybe David didn't take criticism too well, or maybe people felt like they didn't know him well enough. I, I don't know. However, I wonder if, if David had people in his life who cared about him and was willing to call him when he was coming up short. And they were willing to say, hey, your focus isn't on God. How much different would the story have been? Maybe Uriah would still be alive. All of us. And I mean all of us. Like every single one of us. Can we just say this together really quickly? On the count of three, we're going to say the words all of us. Okay, on the count of three, really loud. Whatever campus, if you're at home, scream it. One, two, three. All of us need people. We need accountability. That's one of the reasons God gave us his church. We need people who love us and love Jesus. And you got to wonder, do you have it? Really question, inventory your relationships. Do you have those people? No matter how much power you have or how little power you have. No matter how much you think of yourself or how little you think of yourself. We all need people in our lives who are going to help us to focus on God. Do you have people? And do those people have permission? to speak truth into your life, and are you willing to hear it? Imagine how much different David's life could have been if someone would have intervened, stepped in, called him out. Maybe he could have avoided pulling on that thread that unraveled his life. And now we, we get to see what that sin does to him, because here's the deal, our sin is not without consequences. When we pull on the thread We try to remove God from our lives. Our lives come unraveled. And that sin that David had committed, remember he's living in secret. As we start to look at chapter 12 here, we realize probably about 12 months down the road, now his baby's a few months old, and he finds himself so trapped by the weight of his secret sin that he expresses it in Psalm 32, and here's what he says. He says, when I kept silent, when I didn't tell anybody, when I kept this sin buried deep down inside, the lust, the coveting, uh, the adultery, the murder, when I kept it to myself, my bones wasted away my groaning all day long for day and night your hand was heavy on me and my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer i don't know about you but that feels like a pretty relevant illustration for us right now doesn't it a little bit hot outside you know like yeah way to go maryland 95 degrees 100 percent humidity every single day my kids they've been out at uh at beachmont camp okay and every day, I mean, they don't go inside. They're outside running around all day long. And my daughter, she gets in the van, and no more than 10 seconds after she sits down and buckles her seatbelt, this is what she looks like, okay, every single time. <laughs> zapped, sapped, whooped, worn out from the heat of summer. This is how David felt for a long time. Worn out from the secrecy of his sin. Like the heat of summer, just extracting all of the energy out of his body. He finds himself miserable. Groaning. It was destroying him and something needed to change and well that's that's when god intervened in second samuel 12 it says "Then the lord sent nathan to david the accountability shows up nathan a prophet and a friend shows up and he says david i gotta tell you the story man and david's sitting there he's probably thinking okay this is something that happened in the kingdom that i oversee so he's on the, the edge of his seat listening Okay, Nathan starts to explain the story. He's like, hey, there's this one guy, and, you know, he, he's got all sorts of cattle and lamb. Like, he's got it made. He's got fields and fields. He's rich. Like, he, he's got more than enough. And then you've got this poor guy who found this lamb, this, this baby on the side of the road, left for dead, and he kind of nursed it back to health. He cared for it. It became kind of like a dog in his family. Like, they really loved this thing. Well, the rich man had a friend who was coming into town. And as that man came into town, he found himself saying, you know what, we, we need to have a meal. We need to have a feast. And instead of taking from his big flock all that he had been given, well, he goes and he takes the poor man's lamb. And he butchers it, and he puts it on the table to be eaten. And you kind of picture David just swelling with anger. Like, why, why would he do that? He has more than enough. Why would he take from the other guy? We don't know if Nathan was done with the story or not, but immediately David burst up and he cast judgment on the guy who had done wrong. And here's what he says. He says, that man deserves to die. The man who did this, like he deserves punishment. He deserves consequences. He deserves to die. And then Nathan puts a finger in David's chest he says four words that bring him back to the place of humility. You are that man. Imagine how David felt in that moment. It was no longer a secret. No, it was out there. Nathan knew it. He hangs his head, overcome with grief, and memories come flooding back. All that he had done. It's back at the front of his brain. And he's remembering it. And Nathan goes on to say, hey man, the Lord gave to you and gave to you and gave to you. And anything you wanted, he said he would give it to you. And then you went and took this for your own. And there's going to be consequences. Your son, your son's going to die. Your family's going to be ripped apart. You're going to feel the same pain of adultery that you've caused. And gosh, David probably thought he escaped it all probably thought he made his way out. He'd covered it up. Well, there's no covering up our sin from God. Nathan shows up and pulls the rug out from underneath of him, and we learn a very very valuable lesson. Our sin doesn't come without consequences, but I also want you to know this, and you got to hear this. Our sin also doesn't come without grace, because immediately we see how David responds, and he says this to Nathan and to God. I have sinned against the Lord. He's restored to his humble place. He's once again said, oh my gosh, the stuff I have done, Lord, I, I sinned against you. His pride is starting to decrease and his humility is starting to increase and it took some consequences and it took somebody calling him out and maybe you're sitting in one of our campuses, you're watching online today and you're saying you know what, I feel like the Holy Spirit is convicting me now. The Holy Spirit is here and Nathan is saying you are that man, you are that woman and you realize you're living with some secret sin and you need to find yourself in a place of repentance saying I have sinned against the Lord and then check it out. This is the most beautiful part. What Nathan goes on to say are good words for us today. Day. here's what he says the lord has also taken away your sin you shall not die god's grace is given do i need to remind you how bad david was coveting lusting adultery murder yet god's grace is offered you see in the face of true repentance which simply means to turn towards god to give god your focus grace is extended we know how big david's sin was but when a sinner repents when a sinner turns towards god grace is given no questions asked no hoops to jump through no exit interview from sin repentance equates to grace every time and we start to see the thread of david's life getting sewn back in you know, our sins aren't without consequences but in our greatest sin we see how great God's grace is. And that's true for David. He realized it. He experienced it. He repented and he changed course. He gave God focus again. And you want to see how God uses sinners. Well, the, the very union of David and Bathsheba, generations and generations and generations down the road, well, it leads to the birth of Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful picture of how God can use sin for greatness? How in the midst of your sin, he can redeem it and do something good with it? This affair that took place, this adultery, this murder, eventually God said, let me redeem it and let me bring Jesus out of it. And we're extended the greatest gift of grace ever. Ben talked about this last week in Ephesians chapter 2. He said, hey, we're all sinners. We're in that boat together. But the gift of God given through Jesus and his sacrifice for us is grace. When we don't deserve it, we can't earn it. All we need to do is give God our focus, repent, turn towards him, and he will offer it to us. So friends, let me ask you, is there sin that's bringing you down, that's pulling on the thread, that's trying to unravel your life? It is not too late to turn back and to repent and to say, I have sinned against you, Lord forgive me, and know that when you ask, he will every single time. You see, we need to give God our focus. We need to stay humble. We need accountability, and those things, they are going to help. They're going to help us to overcome sin. But at the end of the day, guess what? I'm still a sinner and so are you. And God's grace will continue to be available to you through the blood and the love of Jesus Christ. After all, if a covetous adulterer or murderer, David, could find himself once again in the position of grace. Well, I'm pretty sure each of us can too then. You know, David, he, uh, he writes Psalm 51. Shortly after his interaction with Nathan, many scholars say like, as soon as Nathan left, he went and just started putting pen to paper, expressing his repentance, expressing his sorrow and his sadness for what he had done, and inviting God to once again have the full focus of his heart and his mind. There are words of true repentance, of faith, words of trust and leaning on God, words that are even meant for us today. What sin are you giving focus to right now? What have you put on the altar in front of God? What pleasure in your life is pulling at the unifying thread of God's Spirit? You know what it is. You can see it, you can hear it, you can feel it. The question is are you going to turn back to Him? Psalm 51 is a prayer that leads us back to focusing on God. It's as simple as that. God, don't don't let our sin bring us down, but instead we will confess with our mouths and and know that you are Lord, and we will turn back to you. So I'd like to close our time together today at all of our campuses and watching online. If, If you would receive this prayer, I just ask you to posture yourself like this. It's a way for us to say, God, we are releasing our sin to you. Whatever it is that's a focus of our heart, God, we're going to release it to you. And at the same time, we are going to receive your grace into our lives once again. And allow Psalm 51 to be your prayer. To refresh you, to offer you focus and repentance as you turn back to God once again. Let's pray. Have mercy on us, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out our transgressions. Wash away all of our iniquity and cleanse us from our sin. For we know our transgressions and our sin is always before us. And against you, only you, have we sinned and done what is evil in your sight. But God, cleanse us and we will be clean. Wash us and we will be whiter than snow. Let us hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from our sins and blot out all of our iniquity. Create in each of us, God, a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit within us. Don't cast us from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from us, but restore to us the joy of your salvation and grant us a willing spirit to sustain us. God, may we forever focus on you. Amen. We invite you all to stand and sing with us.